Hello and welcome to this edition of the ETA Insider Podcast, formerly known as the Entrepreneurship Through Acquisition Podcast, sponsored by the Polsky Center for Entrepreneurship at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. I'm Brian O'Connor, Adjunct Professor of Entrepreneurship at Chicago Booth. And joining me today, I have the pleasure of speaking with my dear friends, Jay Davis and Jason Pananos. Jay and Jason are the co-founders of the Nashton Company, a very innovative investment firm that we're going to learn more about through this conversation and how it all got started. So Jay and Jason, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having us, Brian. I've been admiring your podcast for a while and felt kind of sad that you hadn't asked us sooner, but I'm happy to be here anyway. Well, here we are. Here we are, and we're going to have a great conversation. So why don't we get started? Maybe Jason, give a little bit of background on the story, sort of the origin of Nashton and how it came to be, and we can kind of go from there. Yeah, sounds great, Brian. Well, Jay and I met back in 2006. We were classmates at Harvard Business School and and section mates and got to know each other there. And we both had I think we thought at some point in our careers we wanted to be business owners. And, you know, I think for me, I thought that would be later in my career. I'd go to Wall Street or take a, a traditional job and then end up buying something later in my career. And we were we were lucky enough to learn about the search fund model at the, you know, at the time in two thousand eight, there was really no classes on entrepreneurship through acquisition. There was less information out there. But we, we got lucky in a sense that we did an independent study with a professor. We learned about the search fund model. And I think both of us pretty early on were excited by the ability to potentially build and run a business earlier in our careers, be entrepreneurs and kind of be our own boss earlier was something that just really resonated. So I think from the minute we learned about it, we were interested in it. And luckily, spent our second year in business school learning about it, networking with investors and other people who had done it. And we're able to raise a search fund right after we we graduated in 2008 and took us about two and a half years of, of searching. We like to blame that conveniently on the financial crisis of 2008. But I think in, in hindsight, certainly a lot of things we probably could have done better in our search, but we were pretty lucky to buy a, a really nice cash flowing, stable business in 2011 that we you know we ran and built for seven years. So it was a it was a great journey. Well, I, I know the story of your search journey, and there were many twists and turns, and it ultimately led to a really exciting acquisition. So we probably won't focus too much of our conversation on that search journey, but I, I remember it dearly as <laughs> and nearly as friends as you were sort of going through all that. Jay, how did you all come to find the business that you ultimately acquired in vector disease control? Maybe talk a little bit about that process and the business. I think the listeners would be interested to hear about the company that y'all acquired and, and led. Yeah, sounds good, Brian. We were, for lack of a better way to say it, sending a very high volume of emails as part of our outreach. And that was more possible than, than I think it is today. But we were building lists of companies that we thought had economic characteristics that we were interested in. Those were not complicated. It was mainly recurring revenue business models and businesses that were not asset intensive. And based on those lists, we would then reach out to business owners. And I remember when the owner of VDCI responded to us, I think it might've been a slow day, but Jason and I went to the website and we saw a bunch of trucks. And I think there was even an airplane on the website and it was a mosquito control company. And we thought, well, this probably isn't going to be a fit. But we ended up taking a phone call with the business owner, and I'm really glad we did because 
the first step, honestly, was us really kind of falling in love with the business owner. I mean, he's a really, he was a great person, had built a great business, and we could tell that he really cared about his employees and customers. And as you know, in search, I mean, that, that can be a good fit for the search fund model. And so we got to know Alan pretty well. And really, the more that we learned about the company, the more we realized that it actually did fit a lot of the things we were looking for. So the business had very long-term contracts with its customers based on the nature of the service we were providing, which was disease prevention programs for cities and counties. It was really sticky. So we had all sorts of data on where mosquitoes bred, what kind of diseases were present in the community, and in some cases going back decades. And so it was recurring revenue, very high retention, very sticky business. And even though there were trucks involved, it wasn't as capital intensive as, as you might think on first blush. And so it took us a while to get to that point. But the, again, the more we learned, the more we felt that it fit a lot of the things that we were looking for. And so I think Jason may have to chime in here, but I think it took from that first conversation with Alan to closing the deal, it took about 18 months. And part of that was our own process of just making sure it was the right fit from our perspective, but also for Alan as well, making sure we were the right buyers. And I think it was a really emotional process for him, which is true for a lot of business owners, I think, in that ETA entrepreneurs might buy a company from. It's very emotional. They're tied to it. It's their family. And so it was a big decision for him. And so it did take us a while, but we ultimately were able to close in January of 2011. It's interesting. We actually just wrote a case study at Booth on an entrepreneur who had a similarly lengthy courtship with the business owner that is now his partner in this property security business. And you hear a lot of that in ETA. And I think it emphasizes the importance of keeping a full pipeline and, and managing that pipeline in a smart and thoughtful way, because some of the best opportunities do take some time to really come together and Timing is everything for a business owner and, and a group of entrepreneurs like you both were back then. Jay, is there a learning in this for our listeners around maybe not always judging a book by its cover and taking the meeting, taking the call with the business owner that you sort of initially at first blush say, I don't know, this might be too capital intensive. It doesn't look like something, but having the conversation. Is there a learning in that for our listeners? Yeah, I think it's tempting to think there might be, but I'm not sure I would say that actually, because I think time is, you know, the most valuable thing a searcher has. And the worst thing you can do, in my opinion, is take phone calls or spend time on things that ultimately aren't going to be a fit. It's easy to think about the example I just walked through with us and say, oh, well, you should take as many phone calls as you can. I don't think that's the lesson that people should take from that. In fact, I would take the other side, which is be pretty ruthless about how you spend your time during your two-year search. Have a set of criteria, have a scorecard. I know you teach about scorecards in your class, Brian, which is such a great class. Be ruthless about mapping opportunities to that and don't spend time on stuff that's not going to fit. Can I add something to that, Brian? Because I think in we didn't do it this way, but in hindsight, if we could go back, what we could have done with VDCI, I think is ask very specific questions in that first conversation about how is the revenue generated, how many customers do business with you year after year, and then really just get into essentially the recurring nature of the revenues and the retention of those revenues. And I think over time, we've gotten better about 
being able to ask those questions early, get that data early. And I think if you do that, and that's one of your criteria, that happens to be one of our criteria when we're looking at investments. But if you're searching for a company to buy, and for example, that's the criteria that you're focused on, you can get at that in the first meeting. And had had we done that at VDCI, we would have very quickly seen, wow, this is basically as good as you can get on revenue quality in terms of how much is recurring and then how much of it is retained every year. We got there. It probably took us five phone calls, but I think one of the process steps we could have had in our search would have been to kind of front load that and, and find ways to ask that information sooner. And I think you can do that based on what your criteria is for your search. Jason, I think that's such a good point. I know you all spend a lot of time in your class at HBS on scorecarding and what are the need-to-haves, what are the nice-to-haves, what are the must-not-haves, and to figure out... So I think, Jay, back to something you said, I, I agree that it is very tempting and one can easily spend a lot of time wasted on opportunities that aren't going to make sense. But if you're really clear about your criteria and you have a very direct communication, whether that be via email or over the phone or, or whatever, I think you can filter through things quickly such that you're not burning calories on things that aren't going to advance for one reason or another. But I would challenge, I think there's a balance here, right? Because I get fearful because I, I know the success that BDCI was, I get fearful that the listeners might not give something like that a chance and all of a sudden they're passing on a really exciting opportunity. I think that if you're really clear about your criteria, and again, the must-not-haves, the need-to-haves, and you get that quickly, I think you can find yourself in a nice balance where you're not burning calories on things that don't make sense, but you're also not foregoing potentially really good opportunities. But I, I agree with everything that's said. I think it's a, I think it's a balance. So you got into the VDCI opportunity. I know you, over a, a period of time, you endeavored to make a number of other acquisitions. Maybe we can talk just a little bit about that because I think that's informed some of your investment philosophy around continued M&A, potentially some thoughts around longer holding periods where the market opportunity supports that. Maybe we talk about those concepts in relationship to your tenure as the leaders of VDCI, and then we can talk a little bit about what Nashton Companies focus is today. Jason, why don't I take the first part of that, and then you can transition to you in terms of what we're doing today. But, but at the time, Brian, as you know, we didn't endeavor in our deal starting out to do a serial acquisition strategy. We bought VDCI thinking that was going to be a standalone business. And what happened was the market just ultimately was a lot smaller than we thought. I think we missed that in diligence. And we're, of course, trying to grow our business. The market's smaller than we thought. Selling to governments is just really hard, very long sales cycles. And so we're thinking about, okay, how, how are we going to crack the growth challenge here? And there were a lot of thought that went into that, but ultimately that resulted in an acquisition of a business that was in an adjacent industry, which we describe as Pond and Lake Management. And we did that at the two-year anniversary of our initial acquisition. And the thought process there for us was simple. It's just expanding our addressable market. That's all it was. And it was a related business that had a lot of overlap to what we did. You can imagine you're in and around water bodies in both businesses. There's a very similar regulatory environment, similar permitting process. And, and, and in a lot of cases, similar customers were the same customer. So it might be a public works department, for example. And I think employee base as well, people that were interested in the work. And so there are a lot of reasons they worked well together. And 
even at that time, we didn't think that we would then go on to do several more acquisitions. But that's how it turned out. And at first, it was really organic. So we bought one Pond and Lake management business, and then that business's competitor became available. And it was an obvious acquisition for us. And and I think it was after making three or so, we realized, okay, there's a big opportunity here. And it was really a perfect market for that because it was big enough. So let's say it was $800 million or so in terms of market size. So it was big enough, but it wasn't huge. And it wasn't on the radar screen, I don't think, for a lot of folks. And so we were able to do a series of acquisitions. Most of those business owners were retiring businesses and ultimately did 14 in total really over a five-year period from year two to year seven. So, and, and you're right. I mean, that has informed a lot of how we think about investing today. And, and for that, why don't I turn it over to you, Jason? Well, and Jason, I do want to jump into that in one second, but very quick sort of reaction, Jay, to was it important and was it deliberate that the first acquisition, the first additional acquisition was done in month 24, as opposed to say in month six? or in month 36, for that matter. Was there strategic thinking, that was, or was it truly opportunistic? I think there was more strategic thinking than opportunistic, I would say. I mean, the reality is we were inexperienced CEOs. You obviously understand the model, Brian. And we would not have been prepared, I think, to make an acquisition and integrate it in the first year of our ownership. I'm not sure we're ready at year two either, but we were, we're more ready than we, <laughs> we were in year one. And so... I think it's just important in almost every ETA context for the CEO or or co-CEOs to get their feet under them, understand the business they bought, professionalize the business a little bit. And I think that comes with both improved process, but also in most cases, additions to the management team of some kind. Oftentimes, it's a finance resource based on what we see, but really understanding the business and getting your feet under you. And then you can start thinking about enhancing growth, whether that's organic or through acquisition. I think it's true in both cases. Jason, maybe how have some of those concepts around continued acquisition activity and maybe holding period related, how have those lessons and experiences with VDCI informed what you all are up to now? Yeah, I think you hit it, Brian. There's really two pieces. One is building companies throughout on acquisition. So we obviously learned how to do that. And that's a pretty big piece of what we do now. We're primarily investing in entrepreneurs that are building businesses, entrepreneurship through acquisition, everything from search funds to holding companies to other models. We've co-invested with companies in your firm. So all kinds of activities, but about a third of that is probably focused around building through acquisition. And so I think through our experience, We've learned a lot about best practices and how to do that. But also, if you're buying businesses in a great industry that has high revenue quality, just the, you know, the compounding value of building over time through acquisition with prudent leverage, it could just be a really powerful value creation lever. And you can build great integration processes and get scale benefits. And we think there's probably hundreds of verticals where that can be a pretty attractive strategy for ETA businesses. So that's certainly one angle of it, which we can talk through some of our learnings there and how our philosophy around building through M&A. And the other piece that you mentioned is, is holding period. And it may sound hypocritical from two folks who sold their company after seven years of running it. But I think what we learned to appreciate 
is obviously there's just math around compounding and we've done a lot of analysis around the idea of owning a company for five to seven years, selling that, paying taxes, having your capital sitting on the sidelines, then doing that again, the typical private equity model and comparing that to a simple buy and hold model for same time periods. We've done some work on this and a mentor and colleague of ours, AJ Wasserstein, has written a great paper on this as well that kind of took it to the next level. But it's really powerful when you look at how much more value you can create by owning something for just a long period of time. And there's investors in the search fund world, you know, Will Thorndike being one of them and some others who've done some analysis around following successful search fund acquisitions after they sell. And the patterns is they tend to do pretty well after they're sold. So I think there's been a, a variety of learnings along our career at different points where we've just realized the value of owning something for a really long period of time is just really powerful. And the learnings you get in their first five years you can really apply those in the second five years and the third five years to really build value. So in all of our investing now, and again, I'd say about a third is maybe growth through M&A and two thirds are more organic growth strategies. But in all cases, we believe the longer you can own something, the better off you're going to be. Yeah. And I tend to agree with that notion, Jason, and the data would certainly support it. Let me play devil's advocate for a minute and we can kick this around for just a minute or two. But for fun, the critic of that position might say, well, there's stage-appropriate capital for every business. And it may be the case that your growth rate or your ability to compound equity growth over a very long period of time may taper because your playbook is different or You've simply sort of run out of ideas. What do you make of this critical position of longer-term holds? Yeah, I mean, I'd say a couple of things. One, going back to this idea of comparing a long-term hold to a, let's say, a buy and sell over long periods of time. One of the outcomes of that analysis would suggest that you only need about half the return over, and I'm talking about a 20, 25-year period. In the buy and hold scenario, you only need about half the return on an annual basis to basically achieve the same outcome if you're trading every five to seven years. Sure. The inefficiencies associated with taxation and capital being redeployed into productive assets, that's your drag, right? And therefore, it doesn't take a tremendous amount of additional growth to more than make up for that drag. Yeah, not to totally nerd out on that analysis, but really the biggest drag comes from when your capital is not at work, when you're trying to- It's not of productive use. Exactly. Waiting to be redeployed. That would be one thing I would say if you are trading maybe an asset that has less growth prospects than it did in the first five years, you you basically have to work that much harder when you get it to work the second time than if you just left it at work. Sure. Anecdotally, my experience has been over time, even as companies get bigger, your ability to grow and compound capital as you grow actually gets easier because you can build better teams. You can take advantage of opportunities that you weren't able to do before. Capital structure opportunities. You you can use your balance sheet to your benefit. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm glad we played the devil's advocate out, out because I do hear that as a challenge to this notion of compounding returns over long periods of time on occasion. And hopefully the, uh, 
listeners found some, some value, or at least some entertainment value in that discourse. I'd say one other thing on that though, Brian, you could argue like some businesses you just don't want to own for really long periods of time. And I think that is true. And what I would suggest anyone interested in ETA really just focus on high quality revenue and high quality business models. And those tend to be better 20 year holds than maybe a company that's not recurring or cyclical. Those may be businesses that are okay to, to sell from time to time. But I think the high quality companies tend to be pretty good over long time periods. Yeah, I totally agree. And I mean, I think if you can find those high quality company attributes that you're referring to in an industry or a niche of an industry that has sustainable tailwinds as opposed to something that might be more, you mentioned the word cyclical or quote unquote fad, but you find these niches that have long-term sustainable tailwinds behind them and with the business model characteristics that you just pointed out, that can obviously be a very powerful long-term hold candidate. So I want to shift gears a little bit, but it's related to what we've been talking about. It's sort of a market question. So it probably shouldn't be news to anybody that over the last several years, there is increased awareness in this model, increased interest from people who would like to become an entrepreneur, but do so in a risk-mitigated way, buying an existing asset that has revenue and, and free cash flow generation. There's certainly increased capital interest that is drawn to the risk-adjusted returns that exist in this part of the market. What is this increased level of, I'll just use the word competition, in this space? What has it done for ETA investing broadly? Yeah, actually, we're going to end up playing devil's advocate of much, Brian, because competition is not the word that I would pick, actually, because I think it's a wonderful thing for most of the participants, both entrepreneur and investor in this ecosystem. And the underlying reason for that is there are so many companies at this part of the market that are good fits for the ETA model. We get this question a lot from students, but our experience is that do search funds sometimes run up? Sure, they sometimes do. But there are so many companies out there that it is more than possible to find a great business and that that's a great fit. And so the number of companies is not an issue. And you mentioned more capital availability. That has changed meaningfully in the last decade, as you know, since you and we did this. But I think that's great for the entrepreneur. I mean, the entrepreneur now has choice in who their investors are. When we raised our search fund in 2008, you know, there were probably, I don't know, 25 people that invested in this stuff, maybe more, but not a lot. And now there's, there's a lot more options. And there are also different models. So there's a traditional model, there's an accelerator model, there's a self-funded model and all sorts of twists on that. And I think that's wonderful for the entrepreneur because it gives them choice. You may be at different stages in your life that make one model more appealing to you than another. And I think that's great. And I actually don't think, see if you agree, but there has been more capital that has come into this. But what the data are saying is that that has not lowered returns. And in fact, it's the opposite. Returns have increased a little bit and also tightened from a distribution standpoint. I think the reason for that is people now have a lot more experience investing in inexperienced CEOs in this part of the market. And so there's been a lot of thought that has gone into what 
situation or context or type of business is a good fit for that. And so today versus 15 years ago, I think the criteria that both entrepreneurs and investors are looking for is a little bit tighter and the, the actual average business that's getting bought is better quality. Yeah, I completely agree with that, Jay, and the data don't lie. It'll be interesting to see how that continues to play out. You could make the argument that if we head into a softer economic and capital market environment that we've been in, in sort of the decade of late, that some of the more recent acquisitions that have been done in ETA, we'll see sort of what those vintages look like, but certainly of late that the data don't lie. Again, Jay, Jason and I are in violent agreement on most of the stuff that we're talking about here, but it wouldn't be that entertaining a podcast if we just sat here and agreed with each other. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play devil's advocate. Jay, I, and, and Jason, you can take a stab at this one too, but I would agree that competition is not the right way to think about it. I mean, we are certainly in an emerging investment model and asset class here where there's a tremendous amount of collaboration and certainly a target universe that will support more than enough acquisition opportunities for, frankly, decades to come. But what about the potential? And I I would actually put this in the category of competition, the growing popularity of larger private equity-backed strategics that have earmarked a tremendous amount of balance sheet capacity to go after would-be ETA targets, or the mid-market private equity firm that has come down market because alpha is just non-existent in the market that they've traditionally played in. What, What do you make for that as competition. And Jay or Jason, feel free to take it. I can take the first crack at that if you want, Jason. I think there's no question that private equity has come down market. I mean, from when we were doing this. So I think that's true. But the experience that we're having just watching entrepreneurs is they are still finding great companies at reasonable prices. And although they have come down market, I still think there are structural reasons that make it difficult for private equity firms to compete in this size range. And it's just the way their economic incentives are structured. On top of that, in most cases, an ETA entrepreneur is buying a business from a retiring business owner. And so you not only have the size issue, but you have the situational context. So search funds really are, or do, I should say, have a competitive advantage vis-a-vis private equity in those situations, especially when you have a business owner that wants to retire fairly quickly, cares about their employees and their customers. And I'm not saying that a private equity firm wouldn't treat their employees fairly. They would. Most of them would, of course. But I do think it's different when a business owner is talking to a fellow entrepreneur. They're going to move from Chicago to Dallas to run the business and become part of the community. It just has a different feel to it. And so there's a situational context that search funds or ETA models address that I don't think private equity does. Well, I I always tell the entrepreneurs that I work with that they are decidedly a unique and compelling buyer for the business owner that values continuity, a secession plan. You are decidedly a different type of buyer than a strategic buyer or a true sort of 
in its traditional sense, private equity buyer. And you absolutely need to use that to your advantage in these conversations because there is a huge universe of owner operators that are drawn to the entrepreneur that will relocate and will take a leadership position within that company and see it through its next phase of growth. I mean, that is decidedly different than the proposition that they're being presented with when talking to a strategic buyer or a private equity buyer in its traditional sense. And I think this goes back to our conversation about holding periods as well, because I think even though not all search funds are multi-decade holding periods, they are on average longer holding periods than traditional private equity. And we find that that resonates a lot with business owners. We are not going to buy this company and sell it three or four years later. And I think that's just another way to differentiate. I just want to add one thing to that, Brian, because I totally agree. I think all else equal, uh, entrepreneurship through acquisition focused entrepreneur trying to buy a company, I think almost always can outsell a strategic or a private equity firm in the right situation with a business owner. So I totally agree with that. And I think there's another, this was not an advantage in our day, but I think this is a newer dynamic that's beneficial to entrepreneurs looking for acquisitions. But now ETA is no, like brokers know entrepreneurship through acquisition and they actually have a positive view of it as an exit opportunity for their clients. And that also takes some advantage away from more institutional buyers where theoretically they have capital funds. So certainty of close, I think was viewed as higher 15 years ago. But I think today for many deal intermediaries or even sellers to some extent, the idea of an entrepreneur with an MBA that has investors that have back to them is looked at as equal in terms of ability to close and credibility with with sellers, which I think is fantastic. Well, it's it's certainly a development that is a positive one for the ecosystem that we play in relative to the vintage Jay, Jason, and I lived in when we were doing our search. Sort of, you know, we could take a meeting. I remember several of them with a an investment banker or a broker and talk about what you're up to and you're looked at like you've got three heads. So this is, a, this is definitely a positive development for entrepreneurship through acquisition broadly. Well, we have a couple minutes. And the final thought that I'd like to leave our listeners with is, what does the future hold for Nashton Company? Where are you both focused? And maybe parting words of advice or, or wisdom for the listeners. What's next for Nashton and, and what advice might you give aspiring searchers? I can share some advice. I mean, I think, Jay, you can share your thoughts on where we're going. I, I think we're just really enjoying investing capital, working with really talented entrepreneurs to build great companies. And I think we're going to continue to do that. And we love to teach and build awareness of this model. But one thing I try to make clear to entrepreneurs that are thinking about going down this path is really to think about it as a career and not a deal. And we didn't think about it that way when, when we were looking at deals. Like I think it's common to look at a five-year model and how much money you think you can make if you buy this company and be really focused on the deal. But what we've seen with ourselves, with peers, with lots of folks that go into this space is that it becomes a career. You're, you can, you know, regardless of how your first deal goes, the ability to be able to compound your capital and a long-term way in this market of the learnings you get over time running a business and investing in businesses is just a really, I think, fantastic experience compared to other career paths. And you know, most people, when they 
look at other career paths, they don't just look at the first five years. They look at where can they be in 10 or 15 or 20 years. Right. So I encourage anyone thinking about entrepreneurship to acquisition to have that view as they get into it. I totally agree with that. And I, I, I think when people think about it that way, it just liberates the mind a little bit. And it can be a powerful framework, I think. And I also would say people, when they compare this path to a traditional career path, they overplay the risks in ETA and they underplay the risk in a traditional career path. You might go work at a large consulting firm and that may seem very stable to you, but you may have a boss that is no good or you might get on a project that isn't a great project. There's a lot of things that can affect your trajectory in a traditional career that are outside of your control. And so I think people miss that sometimes when they think about this. It's been really rewarding for us. And it's not only, you know, there's financial rewards, obviously, but it's the people. I mean, there's a lot of really great people in the ETA community, including this is a good example, Brian, right? Like we've gotten to know each other and become very good friends through this community. And it's not just our peers, but our investors and the people that we now invest with and just the learning is, is amazing. So going back to the question on what's next for us, I mean, like Jason said, it's, it's for lack of a better way to say it, more the same. We love the lower middle market. We love backing talented entrepreneurs to build these great companies that sometimes you just never never thought that this was a company or an industry. And so the learning is just great. I would say that we have two bents, which we've covered today, maybe versus other ETA investors. But we are very interested in consolidation strategies. That's partly because that's what we did and what we know. But we feel like we've developed a skill set around that. And so we love seeing those. And then anytime that we can find ways to invest our capital with a multi-decade lens, we're trying to do that. And it goes back to the benefits of compounding. It's just everyone talks about it, but it's really hard to process, I think, how big those benefits really are. Well, Jan, Jason, I think those are such great words of wisdom for our listeners. I mean, from my standpoint, I love the thought of thinking about ETA on a longer term basis, whether it be a longer term holding period for an acquisition or a series of acquisitions and operational experiences that an entrepreneur might be able to enjoy over a long career, right? And it's not the economics alone that should be the determinant of success or not. I mean, Jay, you mentioned it. I mean, the community is is just tremendous. And uh, if it weren't for the community, I wouldn't have the, the dear friendships that I have with both of you. And so I think it's important for us to think through multiple lenses when we think about one's career and, and success and happiness, really, just generally. So listen, we are up on time. We could probably talk for three hours, but we're limited to a short period of time. I just want to say thank you to both of you. This is a huge investment into the ETA community and to the listener, all of our listeners and their learning. And so on behalf of, of Chicago Booth and the Polsky Center for Entrepreneurship, we just like to offer you both just a huge debt of gratitude and, and thanks for uh, investing your time and insights with our listeners. Thanks yeah, for having us. Appreciate it, Brian. And congrats on everything you've, you've done at Booth and it's been, been really fun to watch. Thank you both for being a part of it. Thank you.